Howdy, folks. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of TGC Midweek. Jacob and Michael back with you on the pod. Excited to be continuing our overview of the Bible series. Michael, what's going on, man? Not a whole lot. Just a normal January Tuesday. It is. Yeah, it is, yeah, it is a Tuesday. Uh, it's been cold. Been cold here in San Antonio. We had a little bit of a snow flurry on Sunday. Yeah. My we, girls loved it. Did y'all get any like actual snow that stuck around? Not or? really, but that did not uh, stop them from forming ice balls. Oh, dear. <laughs> and putting them in our freezer. Oh, God. And they're still there today. Oh, uh, you should have a snowball fight with those. I bet that would, that would end really well. Well, I asked them, we've got ice in our freezer already. Why are we putting together dirty ice from the backyard yeah. and saving it in our freezer. But that's funny. Yeah. We had what looked like snow and then it, it's, it was just kind of an icy kind of slush, you know? Yeah. Nothing, nothing real. A few years ago, you remember it did snow mm-hmm. in San Antonio and that was pretty, pretty amazing for that our was kids. Something. Yeah. It was. Yeah. My, uh, where my grandparents live is, is a few hours North of here. And, and I got some pictures from their place and, uh, they got a good bit of snow and it's all on the ground and on the hay bales and in the trees. And like, it looks like a completely different place. Cause I've Just never North seen it. of here. Yeah. Yeah. Got like some good snow. It, it's Cisco. So if any, for like okay. the, the two people listening who know where that is, that's, yeah, it's like four hours North of here and they got, they got a good bit. Yep. So. Well, man, tell me what is your boost and bummer this week? I know that's what everyone is tuning in to hear specifically, and everything after this point is just icing. Sure. Well, my boost this week is for Christmas, one of the presents that I got was a new Burr coffee bean grinder. Mm. And for those of you that don't know what that is, normally a coffee grinder uses blades to slice your beans. And from what I understand, a burr grinder grinds beans through um, kind of uh, hard to describe. It, they're, they're not cutting beans, but putting them through a system where they're being squashed and they're crushed by crushed, kind of a cone that cut, kind of crushed is a great way to put up. it. Yeah, um, and it's supposed to make your coffee a little bit more flavorful. And this particular burr grinder that I got just makes it so much easier to measure how much coffee I need to grind and uh, makes my coffee making process in the evening just a lot easier and more enjoyable. And I found that I enjoy my coffee more in the mornings. Yeah. Well, that's a win. Do you do anything special when you make your coffee or you just kind of use a regular old drip uh, machine? It's a drip machine. Yeah. And so I'll make 10 actually 10 cups a morning. Yeah. And, you know, those cups are small. I think they're six-ounce yeah, cups. It's like two and, cups per coffee mug. And we'll yeah. get through those 10 cups, and I'm the only one that drinks coffee. So, <laughs> <laughs> But that's been a boost. Man, coffee is one of those things where uh, it's such a simple thing, but when, when, you get some, when you get one that's real good, you just really notice it. Oh, yeah. Yep. And coffee is something that you want to spend a little bit of money and time on. Yeah. Because it brings so much enjoyment to your life. There's a small marginal increase in costs, large marginal increase yes. in quality of life. Quality of life. <laughs> coffee just, you know, it's, it's a major boost for mm-hmm. the quality of life and literally a boost to get out of bed and wake up in the morning. Yeah, get you going. So your bummer. What bummer? What's that? Our bummer now is over the past uh, week or so, Rachel and I have run out of shows to watch in the evenings. And so late last fall, we were excited about the new season of The Crown. Mm. We watched Ted Lasso on Apple TV. 
And now we're kind of dry with regard to good television shows that we can watch and enjoy together. There's not a lot that's come out or been made. And it's hard to find a show that we both like. Yeah. I might like a show and it might be a little bit too violent or maybe political for her taste. And, you know, she likes shows that might be a little bit like Call the Midwife. And, (laughs) you know, it's not necessarily my cup of tea. Yeah. Uh, so she'll watch that on her own sometimes, and I'll watch shows on my own. But we have made kind of a commitment, and she's better at this than I am, where she is only watching TV on Sundays Oh, now. And so maybe this is this is a bummer for me that maybe she's not feeling because I tend to look forward to a good show in the evening if yeah. we're into something. But it's Man. a new year, and this is a resolution that yeah. she's made. So. We're- we're kind of in the same boat with that. We we watched The Crown on your recommendation and yeah. uh, enjoyed it, uh, but that we we finished that um, a couple of days ago, and yeah, there's just not much else that's that's out there. Yep. You know, yep. um, Brittany doesn't want to sit and watch uh, endless episodes of Meat Eater with me um, for some reason. I don't know. He's watching some guy shoot elk and carve them up and then eat uh, elk heart. I, I, sounds like quality entertainment to me, but it's not. <laughs> Uh, well, speaking of quality entertainment, let's give the folks some quality entertainment. So, um, the folks that have been with us for a long time know that we've been walking through an overview of the Bible for quite some time now, um, camped out for the last little bit in the New Testament. We talked about Acts the past couple of weeks, and now we're going to start launching into the epistles. And I think we'll do Paul's epistles um, as sort of a block, and we'll take the big ones sort of as they come, and then maybe some of the smaller ones will lump Mm -hmm. together in a single episode. But tonight we're talking about Romans, which I think it's difficult to overstate the importance of the book of Romans to um, the Christian theological understanding generally and um, the composition of the New Testament. Yeah, it's definitely uh, the longest and most theologically significant of Paul's letters. You could make that argument fairly easily. And it's uh, it would be hard to overstate the importance and the significance that this book has played in the history of the church, specifically when you think about the Reformation. Yeah, and uh, Romans being uh, one of the books of the Bible that really lit that fire, and specifically, I think of Martin Luther, uh, who was the great reformer, and um, and he talks about Romans chapters. Uh, or chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, being uh, just highly influential in his conversion experience, him being um, a Roman Catholic monk at the time and trying his hardest to earn God's favor and feeling the burden of that crushing load, Uh, him reading Romans uh, in um, his room in the evenings, and he talks about Romans chapter uh, 1, verses 16 to 17, which is actually... You could make the argument the thesis verses uh, or the thesis statement for Paul's book mm-hmm. uh, of Romans. And it, it says this, uh, Romans chapter uh, 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God or the righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so uh, Martin Luther talks about him just coming to the realization uh, that salvation is a gift. 
and it has to be taken hold of through faith, which is also a gift of God. And this basically freed Martin Luther from the bondage of having or trying to earn God's favor. And he talks about it, you know, the doors of paradise opened Mm -hmm. all at once. And he all of a sudden was reading the scriptures through new lenses. And it really stoked the Reformation uh, in many ways. And so Romans, uh, very influential in church history, um, kind of Paul's magnum opus, uh, you could say, um, in the New Testament. And it's interesting that Paul, in writing Romans, it's kind of a universal letter. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk a little bit about the purposes of why he might have written to the Roman church specifically, but you can kind of take Romans and place it in any context and it would work. Whereas, you know, he writes very specifically to the Corinthian church, calling out certain people for certain sinful patterns in life. And it's very evident he has specific people in mind in other letters or specific circumstances. In the book of Romans, you can read chapters 9 through 11, and you get no sense that Paul has any specific circumstance or explicit. He doesn't explicitly state it in in the letter, and he doesn't mention any individuals or, Mm -hmm. or specific individual sin like he does in other letters. He doesn't call anybody out by name. Yeah. And so um, it's kind of a general letter in some ways, although it is written to the Roman church. Yeah, it it really is kind of a um, it just expounding Christian theology uh, vis-a-vis the gospel and all of the important um, corollaries that kind of come with that. Yep. I, and it is sort of the way that it's written. It's very like Paul was an educated guy and um, like, very sort of logical and it reads as um and like an argument like mm-hmm. you would write to i don't know if persuade is the right word but to sort of put out all of your um pieces of reasoning there it's exactly what it is i mean he even uses uh if you if you look at how letters were classified in ancient uh rome um this is really a a, a letter where he is um, in some ways, he is making an argument, and you get senses that he's answering questions that are posed to him, mm-hmm. but he poses them to himself. Um, it's kind of a memo, like, you know, this is what the gospel is. It's all about the gospel and salvation and how folks come to salvation in Christ. And so you're exactly right. I mean, if we didn't have Romans, uh, a lot of our idea of Paul as a logical, consistent, systematic thinker, it wouldn't be completely gone because, you know, the other letters right. that he writes are nothing to sneeze at. But Romans is really where you get Paul's systematic, um, logical explanation of what the gospel and mm-hmm. salvation in Christ means, not just for Jewish people, but also for Gentiles. And when you get into some of the arguments that he deals with here, um, I think you'd have to say, Christian or non-Christian, this is uh, one of the most important and impactful letters ever to be written. Yeah, generally. Yep. Whether you consider it scripture or not, it's up there, like with the Magna Carta, is like one of the most important pieces of you prose ever make put that down. Argument. Yeah, yeah. So let's get into some of these uh, issues that Paul deals with. Uh, we talked about Romans one, where he sort of introduces the thesis statement, saying that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And one of the first major themes that Paul's going to deal with is the relationship uh, is the relationship between the Jewish community and the Gentile community, and specifically that both of these groups of people are similarly broken and fallen. Yep, that's exactly. He's building. He's he's putting building blocks on top of one another as you read Romans. And the first building block, the foundation that he has to start with, is everyone is sinful. Mm-hmm. Everyone has engaged in idolatry, and he starts with the Gentiles uh, in chapter one. And then he moves into indicting the Israelites mm-hmm. or the Jewish people in chapter 2, basically saying, you guys are even more guilty yeah. because unlike the Gentiles, you know who God is. You've received his gracious law. You um, have been cared for over the centuries by Yahweh, and yet you have still turned your back on him in idolatry. Mm-hmm. And so he is basically um, letting everyone know uh, that they're going to be called to account. Um, and that's really the first two chapters uh, of Romans um, where Paul lays everyone low. Yeah. He, he starts off, like you said, um, speaking to a Gentile audience, saying that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. Basically, the Gentiles... Um, don't have any excuse for for not knowing who God is. In fact, they do know who God is, but they don't worship Him as God nor give thanks to Him, and they su- suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Um, but then there's there's a, a transition that happens in uh, chapter three where he says, um, "Oh, sorry, I got ahead of myself." But then he he uh, turns towards the Jews, as you said, and um, said that they have even more reason to uh, to feel guilty. Yeah. And he kind of concludes there with a very famous set of verses, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, or in the middle of verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Basically summarizing what he just talked about with Gentiles and Jews being idolaters who have turned away from God, and then he turns the corner uh, in verse 21 of chapter 3, and he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, doesn't matter if you're a Jew, you're all idolaters, you all have turned away from God. And now righteousness or right standing in God's eyes doesn't come through obedience. It comes through your belief in Jesus Christ, your faith in him as sent by God. And so, um, you know, he turns that corner there uh, in in Romans chapter 3, basically sharing good news, Mm -hmm. um, talking about how we're justified or declared righteous by faith. Um, and justification by faith is is just it was a hallmark of the Reformation. Yeah. Um, it was something that the reformers rediscovered. It's not new; it was always there, but it had been lost in many ways. And uh, we credit the reformers with kind of 
uh, digging up something that had been lost uh, over the mm-hmm. over the years in the Roman Catholic Church in many ways. Yeah. Uh, the next major theme that I see that kind of happens, I guess, towards the end of chapter three there, and then getting into chapter four is the relationship between the law and sin, and then the Abraham sort of being this figure as sort of a common denominator between Jew and Gentile. Yeah, and this is a great this is a great uh, place to talk a little bit about how are Old Testament folks saved. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you get the example of Abraham here in chapter four, verse three. The scripture says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so, how were Old Testament uh, uh, Jews or believers saved? Well, they were saved by faith in God. Mm-hmm. Abraham uh, believed in God's promises to him many, many years before the law was even given. Uh, And he was credited with righteousness even before the law came to be explicitly written out in the Ten Commandments uh, and in the book of Exodus. One of the things that Paul says is that Abraham was justified, that this this faith and then credited him as righteousness takes place before Abraham is circumcised specifically for that point to be made. Um, no work could have yeah. uh, earned God's favor. It was simply trust and belief in, in God's goodness and his promises towards him. Right. So he uses Abraham to make that argument, and this would have uh, been very familiar to the Jewish audience to which he was writing. They would have understood what Paul was saying, and it would have been fairly forceful for them to have heard this as an argument in their lives that Abraham was also saved, not by obeying the law, Mm -hmm. but by believing in God's good promises towards him. So then as as we move on here, there's um, in chapter 5, 6, and then especially in 7, Paul gets into this relationship to the law. Since he's established that we're justified by faith, it's sort of like, okay, well, then why do we have to have the law at all? You know, Um, I don't remember where it is. Exactly. But he he anticipates his argument by saying, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. And so um, talk a little bit about this relationship between justified believers and the law of God. Yeah. First, I think it's important. um, That's a great discussion. But one of my favorite little motifs or themes that Paul touches on uh, is found in Romans chapter five, where he talks about through Adam, we've all died. Mm hmm. Uh, The first man has passed along sin and unrighteousness to us, but through the second Adam or through Christ, any that believe in him and are united to him can be made righteous. And I just, I love that image. All people in this world are either united to Adam or they're united to Christ. Mm -hmm. And if we're united to Christ, that is the new humanity, the new community that God is is creating. And you can be united to Christ, whether you're a a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're white, black, brown, um, no matter your uh, ethnicity or culture. And I just think it's it's a great theme to have in the back of your mind. Am I united to Adam or am I united to Christ? Mm -hmm. We're all born united to Adam in sin. Uh, but through faith, we can we can be united to Christ and experience life. But yeah, Paul does talk about uh, the law um, beginning in uh, chapters 6 and 7. Uh, and the law really being the thing that points out our sin. It exposes the sinfulness 
that we all carry in our hearts. Um, and so, uh, God's law, that's, that's what it shows. It just leaves us more guilty. Um, it says, don't lie, don't steal, love others, don't covet. And we all know those are things that we do. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of just builds up a record of sin is what the law does. And what happens is Jesus comes and he wipes that record clean. And so in some ways, Paul is using the law, and if we use it correctly, uh, it's meant to drive us to Jesus. It's meant to convict us of our sin and to build up that guilt and shame in some ways, and then to go have it relieved, not by working harder in order to erase the guilt and shame on our own, but to take it to Jesus so that he can erase that guilt and Mm -hmm. shame for us through his perfect life in obedience to the law on our behalf. What is this relationship between the law and sin, though, that Paul uh, tries to tease out? Because he seems to start to suggest that um, sin would have no power if the law had not been given. I mean, it's it, he, he sort of uh, puts forth this argument, like when you're a kid and you go to a museum and it says, don't touch, the first thing you want to do is touch it. Yep. Yep. So how, how should we understand that? I think in some ways uh, the law acts as a mirror. Um, we would not know... Uh, sin apart from the law. Mm-hmm. And so the law exposes, uh, it's like a flashlight or a microscope that makes us aware of the ways that we're violating God's intentions for our lives in this world, his commands. Uh, and so in some ways, like we've had this discussion before, the law was gracious on one hand because it revealed who God was, his character, his intentions for our lives. And as we read the law, we have one of two options. We can try to get to work in order to obey uh, and to accomplish the law on our own. But Paul's basically cutting that uh, option um, out from under us uh, by saying that, you know, no one no one can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other option is to allow the law to expose our sin and force it to drive us to Christ. And so without the law, we'd still be sinners for right. sure. Um, there would still be sin in our hearts, but the law comes and exposes that sin in a way uh, that we would not be cognizant of otherwise. Yeah. But Paul doesn't just say that it exposes it, but that it it amplifies it. He uses the example of covetedness, and I'm not finding it as I'm looking down here Mm -hmm. real quickly, but he says, I wouldn't have known what it means to covet if the law hadn't said, don't covet. That's kind of point number one. But then point number two is that it stirs up all these occasions for covetedness within me. Yeah. Yep. Um, so he's, you're, you're trying to hit on uh, Romans chapter seven. Um, what should we say then is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet and sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind for apart from the law, sin is dead. And so exactly what you're saying. I mean, he wouldn't have known what coveting is unless God said, do not covet. Once he heard the idea that we're not meant to covet, all of a sudden he finds himself wanting to covet all the more. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you could make the argument, uh, he's just realizing what was in his heart all along. Yeah, I think that, but, that, that's um, it. Yeah. I think that if you've got kids or uh, for us just as adults, I mean, we know what it's like. Adam and Eve are perfect examples. They were given the whole garden and were told that they couldn't eat of one tree. Mm -hmm. 
And what did they want to do? They wanted to go and eat of the tree. The one tree out of all of paradise, the one restriction placed on them, they wanted to go uh, and engage in that restricted practice. And it just says something about the pride of the human heart that leads us to want to do exactly what we're told is not good for us and that we shouldn't do. Right. There's there's one piece in Romans 7 that I want to tease out because it's always been... um, an important, uh, I don't know, touchstone to me because there's this, you know, Paul's laying out this, um, not not necessarily contrasting them, but talking about them uniquely, the law and the gospel and how they're they're unique, but they exist within the believer um, at the same time. And so there's this, um, correct my Latin here, Michael, but the simul justus et peccator reality that you're, you're both a saint and a sinner at the same time. Mm-hmm. Paul touches on this in Romans 7 where he says, um, let me find it here. Uh, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law and that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but my abil- but not the ability to carry it out. Later on, he sort of laments, oh, wretched man that I am mm-hmm. who will deliver me from this body of death. Yeah. So this war at play in, in Paul's heart, you get a glimpse of that in Romans chapter 7. And, you know, the Latin phrase you just used, simulustus et peccator, simultaneously justified yet sinner. Mm-hmm. And so we we still battle with the sin that resides in our hearts and it's going to be there until um until we're glorified. Um but um but Jesus has given us victory in some ways and we experience and taste that victory and that freedom that he's won for us. It's interesting and we don't have time necessarily to talk about this but um just to put it in your back pocket in, in case you wanted to come read about uh read more about it. In Romans chapter 7, uh, verses 14 through 25, um, there is debate in uh, theological circles on whether or not Paul is talking as a Christian Mm, or talking pre-conversion. And uh, different folks line up in different ways. I tend to think that he's talking as a Christian. Yeah, that's my thought too. Um, And so he's, he's... uh, painting the picture of a problem that we all experience in the Christian life. I mean, I want to follow God, but there's still this power in my heart and life that pulls me away from doing what I really want to do. Mm-hmm. And I think we can all resonate with the picture that Paul paints in Romans chapter 7 in this war. It's a little bit like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde mm-hmm. uh, at play in our hearts and our souls. Yeah, it starts to feel a little bit dark, and then he ends the chapter by saying, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then at the very end of seven, and then as we get into chapter eight, he kind of turns it around and starts to become uplifting. He ends seven by saying, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then begins chapter eight by saying, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for Mm -hmm. the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Yep. Yep. And so, I mean, uh, the end of chapter seven in this war that he feels within himself leads to, to just comfort that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then chapter 8 is really kind of the mountaintop in some ways of his theological argument. Just such a rich chapter of encouragement in what God's doing uh, in our lives through the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, 
And yeah, chapter eight is is one of those, especially um, the end of chapter eight. Uh, if you're ever in need of encouragement, um, it's a place where you could go. Uh, chapter eight, verse thirty-one. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered it up up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Mm-hmm. Um, and all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he goes on, for I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then that's the end of chapter 8, and it's hard to think of a more um, a more kind of, uh, um, I don't know, uh, exalted ending yeah. that he could give his argument that he makes uh, beginning in, in chapter 2. It's definitely very encouraging. I've heard this chapter, though, misused uh, several times, especially the more than conquerors piece where it becomes very, um, you know, like when you play in football and coaches like telling you you're more than conquerors or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Just things where it's clearly not what it's meant to be. <laughs> I, it's really meant, I think, to refer back to sort of his two Adams thing. And so like being in Christ because of Christ's righteousness on mm-hmm. our behalf all of these things can be said about us. Yeah. It reminds so it's me, really more about Jesus than it is about us. That's right. And it reminds me of the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ oh, who yeah. gives me strength, the <laughs> other popular athletic Bible verse that folks uh, tend to misappropriate in some ways. Yeah. Although it comes from a good heart and motivation, I would imagine. Uh-huh. So uh, we end chapter 8 and starting to get into chapter 9 here. Paul begins to um, lament his... His his brothers, his kinsmen, his uh, basically his fellow Jews, because salvation has come first to the Jews, but the nation of Israel has largely rejected him. Um, some important developments happen in this chapter. Yeah, and you got to think that the Romans would have been thinking about this, uh, specifically the Jewish audience. Mm-hmm. Well, what about the Jews and all the promises that God has made to us? And this is kind of Paul's rabbit trail or, or digression uh, to deal with those questions. Um, what about the Jews? And uh, Paul basically makes the argument that ethnic Israel doesn't necessarily mean that you're a covenant member of God's uh, family. And so uh, it's not about being born uh, into the covenant family. Uh, It's about taking hold of the promises of God through faith Mm -hmm. that's most important. And so what that means is that um, there's a new covenant family, not based on whether or not you were born Jewish, uh, but based on your faith in Christ Jesus. And so this is really Paul trying to uh, make the argument that uh, God isn't um, uh, punishing the Jews necessarily. He's exploding uh, the promise that he made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, that through you all of the earth will be blessed. Mm-hmm. In some ways, this is the the culmination of that promise. Um, uh, God's family isn't getting smaller. It's getting bigger to include Jews with Gentiles. But you do get a sense that Paul is lamenting the fact uh, that Jews have not recognized Christ or Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Savior and the long-awaited Messiah. And... Um, he does uh, – you get a sense – It's these are a sad few chapters. You do get a sense that um, Paul uh, articulates 
that there's a special place in God's heart for his his original covenant people. Mm-hmm. And I think that you get the flavor more than the explicit verses to back this up, but you got to think that that God who started with the Jewish people has a soft spot in his heart, for lack of a better phrase to say it, uh, for the people that he had set his love on first. Mm-hmm. And he has a burden. If you could say that, God has a burden in his heart for the Jewish people, his original covenant people, to come to acknowledge his son, the Savior that he sent, in order for their salvation. And um, and they haven't done that, and, and it makes Paul sad. He even says, I wish that I could be cut off. Yeah. If, if some of you could come to the knowledge that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that we've been looking for, mm-hmm. uh, but they refuse to do it. And, uh, and that's kind of what these chapters are about. So uh, that's a pretty good segue into his imagery of the, the olive tree and the natural and the grafted-in branches. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, basically making the argument that now there's a multi-ethnic family of God. And there have been some branches on this olive tree that have been cut off. Uh, and those are Jews that have refused to believe uh, that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior. And then there's been some branches that have been grafted into this olive tree. And those branches are meant to represent the Gentiles that have been now grafted into the promises that God has made to the world. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, we could think about it this way. Uh, the Old Testament history of God's people is now our history. We've been grafted in. We've been adopted into God's family. And though we don't claim to be Jews by ethnicity, uh, the Old Testament stories uh, that we read about uh, in God's great works and history in the Old Testament are our family history now because we've been grafted in and adopted into the family. And so... Is that why we sing Father Abraham and many sons? Yeah. I, we've <laughs> talked about this before, too. It's it's one of the most theologically it correct is. and rich songs that our kids sing yeah. and just grow up knowing. Father Abraham had many sons. Mm. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. He's doing the motions right now. So you let's all praise the Lord. Um, and uh, and that's, that's really Paul's argument here. Israel is now the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but... Um, does God still have a soft spot in his heart for the Jewish people? I think that we could, we could say, yes, it's a little ambiguous. Um, but there is the thing about how the natural branches of the, of the olive tree that have been cut off can be regrafted, regrafted in. back in. Yep. So, and there, you get a sense that Paul says one day Jesus is going to be acknowledged by his people. Mm-hmm. But he kind of leaves it there, and we can't be dogmatic. Some folks read that to say there's going to be a future coming day where there's basically um, a revival among the Jewish people recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. Paul doesn't promise that. Um, We're left to read a little bit between the lines. But it should give Christians a burden for the Jewish people, perhaps, Mm -hmm. Uh, those that are Jews that have not yet come to embrace Jesus. And it, it it's just, it's not sad. I don't want to use that in a pejorative way. Oh, they're so sad. It's mm-hmm. so, but if you think about it, they have gotten halfway there. I, I hate to even say it that way, but I think you know what I mean. Like you're either all there or you're not. I understand that. We can nuance this and it could die the death of a <laughs> thousand qualifications. But I mean, they're halfway there in terms of like, they had the promises and the covenant uh, keeping of God and they, they, 
just didn't take that last step to recognize yeah. this last prophet that God had sent. Basically, exactly what Paul lays out at the beginning of the book by saying that the Jews have um, even more reason than the Gentiles to recognize Jesus. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, you said one thing I want to just dwell on a little bit. You said um, Israel is now the church. Um, I want to camp out there just for a minute as we're discussing this, because oftentimes our brand of theology is, um, I would say, mischaracterized as replacement theology, that Israel sort of goes away and now it's the church. But there's a little bit more continuity than that character characterization would would recognize, because there is sort of, like Paul talks about at the beginning of Romans 11, a remnant in Israel that persists. And like we talked about with Abraham, the salvation of Old Testament saints was always on the same basis as our salvation, which is um, which is by faith. And so um, while it's there's not a, like a replacement relationship going on there, there's an expansion mm -hmm. and changed relationship in some way. But the elect of God have been the elect of God in Old Testament Israel and in the church age now. And so the replacement thing, I just wanted to kind of push back on a yeah. little bit and say that's yep. we can talk about how the church Israel has now become the church or however you mm -hmm. put it. We shouldn't say that the church has replaced Israel. That That's a little sure. bit too simplistic. Yeah. I mean, it just gets better. It includes yeah. more people. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. I mean, the book of Ephesians is really all about this. Uh, it's, a, it's a letter addressed to how do Jews and Gentiles live together now as the people of God. And so uh, you might say it that way. I mean, the Jews have not stopped being the people of God. Yeah. Uh, there's just been more folks included in that community. Uh, and so, like you say, it's not that Israel has been replaced. Um, it's gotten better, uh, more room has been made, so yeah. to speak. Christianity really is the um, culmination of the Old Testament story. Yep. yep. And if you, I mean, if we had, a, I mean, it'd be awesome if we You know who I heard say that was John MacArthur, and I don't think oh. he realized what he said. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> it'd be great if we had a whiteboard, because I just have this picture of like, you know, um, basically a, a V sideways where it just gets better and better and bigger and bigger, yeah. you know, as history progresses and, and God's redemptive plans come to fruition. Well, uh, let's turn the corner a little bit now. And we've, we've kind of deliberately gone slow through the first 11 chapters of Romans. I mean, I think we could do a whole podcast series just on Romans, but we've kind of gone slow here. And I think that's been intentional because there's so much richness in those first 11 chapters. And so I don't want to seem... Um, reductionist by kind of going 12 through the end. But mm -hmm. this is really where Paul kind of turns a corner and sort of gives a therefore where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. <clears throat> so this is where he sort of laid out the theological foundations of the gospel and, and explained to the Roman church everything that they need to know. And then for the rest of the book, he's going to kind of say, in light of this, mm -hmm. this is how you should live. Yep. And that's, that's a paradigm you should have as you read every one of Paul's letters in the New Testament. He starts with what is true, and then he moves on to what to do. He starts with the indicative mm -hmm. and moves on to the imperative. And the indicative always has to be the thing that propels or motivates the imperative. Because if you flip those around, then you've got works-based Christianity 
if I obey these imperatives, then the indicative will be true in my mm-hmm. life. That's not how it works. He says, this is who you are. This is what Christ has done in your life. Look at all these beautiful theological truths. And now, out in light of that, uh, as, a, as a motivation of gratitude because of who you are in Christ and the gifts of God, um, now go and live this way. Mm-hmm. And so he talks about what it looks like to serve one another in the church um, how it looks like to love one another and how love is actually the fulfillment of God's law. Uh, he talks about humility and forgiveness. He talks about the Christian's posture uh, towards the uh, state authorities. Um, and then he uh, touches on um, how um, we're meant to show grace and love and deference mm-hmm. to each other on non-essential issues. Um, in chapters 14 and 15. As you might imagine, Gentiles and Jews had lots of different cultural um, baggage, so to speak, that they brought to their Christian lives. And so the Jews had a hard time with folks not being circumcised. The Jews likely had a hard time in this new environment uh, with Gentiles eating certain things specifically eating unclean food. I mean, you got to think that if you were brought up your whole life thinking that you can't have pork, and then all of a sudden you're like, well, you can have pork now because Christ has made all things clean. It's not like you just flip the switch and yeah. all of a sudden you're like, man, look, give me some bacon. That's a hard thing to, to come to grips with. And so uh, Paul talks a lot about showing grace to each other on non-essential issues uh, allowing love to be uh, kind of the way that we uh, relate to one another. Yeah. And like I said, I don't want to just lump all those chapters in and, and uh, portray them as as unimportant, but they do kind of 12 through the end follows that persistent theme of this is how you should live um, in, in light of the gospel out of a <clears throat> posture of gratitude towards Christ and love for one another. Mm-hmm. So. Um, well, Michael, I think we can we can probably leave it there for the evening unless you've got any burning points you want to leave the folks with. I think it is interesting. Uh, towards the end, you get a sense that Paul wrote to the Romans because he was about to visit them. He had not yet visited the city of Rome, which would have been the epicenter of the known world. Mm-hmm. And his intention was to launch off from Rome to move on to Spain. And he talks about this in Romans uh, chapter 15, uh, beginning in verse 22, when he talks about his travel plans. And what he really wanted was the Roman church to get behind him and support his mission and ministry to the ends of the earth. Now, he never made it to Spain. Yeah. Most folks believe that he was martyred in in Rome uh, at the end of the 60s, uh, the first century at the end of the 60s. But he was basically uh, that was that was his next step. It was a stepping stone to Spain. Yeah. Well, good deal, folks. We're going to leave it there for the evening. If you've got questions about Romans that this podcast may have sparked, we'd love to hear those. We'd also love to hear your questions um, about any of the other New Testament books that might help guide our discussion when we get there in coming weeks. Um, if you've got those questions, you can email them to questions at trinitygracesa.org. Or you can text those questions anonymously to the number you'll find on the back of your Sunday morning bulletin. This has been TGC Midweek, and until next time, we'll see you later.